and welcome to the Betsy Boss Podcast. Welcome back. We're back here on part three of our horrifying journey through the University of Idaho mass murder. And things are getting really scary at this point. I don't know how you're all feeling, but we are just shaking in our boots and very eager, I think, for a certain somebody to pay for the crime that he committed. I will I will say, and I think I might have mentioned this before, that like I read through all types of true crime stuff and especially like look through Reddit before going to bed each night <laughs> like a crazy person. But this is the only case that actually scared me going to bed even knowing like after they arrested spoiler alert Koberger (laughs) like even after he was arrested and everything just reading all the details this is the one case that has actually scared me and like oh getting out of bed to go to the bathroom or whatever I was like oh just creeped out yeah oh it really is creepy and it just it hits too close to home because I mean we really did our research we really looked into like the structure of the house what these girls were all about and boy and it just it really hits close to home and it's scary and it just could happen to kind of anybody. And even though, you know, there is the idea that this might have been a targeted crime and that Brian Koberger or whoever the murderer was did target somebody specific in this, it kind of still has that feeling that it's so random. It definitely is because the majority of crimes are committed by somebody at least somewhat associated with the person, whether or not, I mean, usually it's, you know, spouse or partner or something like that. But um, you know, or somebody that at least is an a, an acquaintance or something like this. But at least from what we know, it seems like Koberger is, even though he's in the area, just kind of a random person to come across these people. So th- I think that's what probably makes it so scary is it feels very random. Yeah, it really is. And it just, it feels like it could happen anywhere. I mean, we talked a lot about Moscow and what kind of town that was and what it looked like before this murder happened. And what it looked like is that there wasn't a whole hell of a lot going on. No. <laughs> and it was a sleepy small town. Everybody knew each other. Everyone kept their doors unlocked at night. And the fact that it happened in a town like this, just sort of an anywhere USA type town, it just feels like it could happen anywhere. And it's it's just creepy beyond belief. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess we'll get started into Koberger's background. That's where we're kind of going to start now. We've gone through all the details of, like you said, the house, the case, how things are laid out, how we think the crime was carried out. Now we're going to get into the suspect. So Brian Koberger was born on November 21st, 1994 in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. His parents are natives of Brooklyn, New York. And shortly after Brian finished high school at Pleasant Valley High School in 2013, he attended Monroe Career and Technical Institute in Bartonsville. He actually, and this, you know, if we're looking for kind of breadcrumbs along the way or details that people may want to kind of store away and think, oh, this could be something, he did drop out a year later from this. He later attended Northampton Community College in Bethlehem, where he earned an associate's degree in psychology in 2018. After graduating from Northampton, he worked as a security guard, oh God, for the Pleasant Valley School District, which is very concerning. (laughs) And ironic. How pleasant could it be? Oh, not very pleasant. And uh, yeah, don't want him as the security guard. That's for sure. 
And this was the same school district where his father previously worked as a maintenance worker for many years. And his mother actually worked for a time as a substitute teacher. And I think she was still working as a substitute teacher, at least at the time of his arrest, um, if I remember correctly. Yikes. He received his BA in 2020 and an MA in 2022 in criminal justice. So we start to see him going down this path. We start to see him first with the security guard. Now he's going into criminal justice. So, again, the the details kind of build up and it just makes you wonder what was his motive. And even if his motive was kind of pure, I guess, going into it, when did it change? Um, And so... He started studying criminal justice from DeSales University, and this is in Center Valley, Pennsylvania. Ugh, just another wonderful member of the Pennsylvania Club. Another oh, yeah. delightful statesman of ours. So, Keystone. Yeah, the Keystone <laughs> State and uh, somebody who was clearly... Key, key to something. Yeah, the key to the, the mystery here as yeah. far as we're concerned. So in the summer of 2022, Brian moved to Washington State to pursue his PhD at Washington State University in Pullman. And the campus, just to give you an idea of where things are geographically, is less than eight miles or 13 kilometers west of Moscow. So we're getting closer and closer. We're zeroing into the Moscow area. And because you might be thinking, how the heck does a Pennsylvania guy end up in Moscow? How could they even connect this guy to this crime? Well, we're starting to get closer and closer here. Yeah. And I will say at first, being from the East Coast, not knowing much of the West Coast, um, when they were saying he like it may cross borders go into Washington, I was like, I did not even think that this was so close to the border. But it definitely sounds like um, just based on kind of testimonies and how everything is set up there that these two college towns are very closely linked and like you said very close by to begin with so you could almost even though they go across borders um, you could almost think of it as kind of one extended community that's a good way of thinking about it and I think it's often that when we on the east coast are so used to kind of how our different states line up where things are over here and then we think about stuff out west and we don't really know where everything lines up and where the borders are and where stuff is and what's close to what so it's good to kind of get that idea of where everything is and how close he really was to moscow at this point already when he was beginning to pursue his phd yeah and i think this was one of the best um programs too to get into for kind of criminal justice or criminology that he was studying. So even though it's across the country, I think it was probably a good opportunity and he obviously took it. Well, and isn't it ironic? I mean, foreshadowing big time here, but isn't it ironic that our presumed killer is studying to be a criminologist Yeah, and learning how criminals think, learning how to get justice for criminals. What's the connection here? There's something going on. Absolutely. So at the time of the killings, Brian was a doctoral student in criminology, and he had completed his first semester there nine days before he was arrested, which is just crazy. I mean, just to give you an idea of where he was in his life and in his academia. And Koberger had been a teaching assistant at WSU, and less than two weeks before the murders, faculty members actually met with him to discuss their growing concerns about his behavior and his conduct. So this guy was already an issue long before these murders happened. He was terminated from his teaching assistant role on December 19th. And just to remind you again, 
these murders took place in November. Um, so we're just looking at a very tight timeline here. There's weird behavior going on. There's rising concerns among the faculty about this teaching assistant. And the decision is said to have been made based on his unsatisfactory performance as a teaching assistant, including, wait for it, his failure to meet the norms of professional behavior in his interactions with the faculty. So all of this is to say this guy clearly is a problem and has real issues with authority and with following the norms and following the appropriate behavior. So we already have some kind of weird behavior here. We have some weird red flags and it's probably not so far fetched to think, Hey, weird guy, weird path was going in a weird direction. And it's not so strange what ended up happening. Yeah. This was probably like starting to be the cracks or, or just that facade that he had to the public was starting to break away uh, even before the murders that his true nature was kind of coming through. And I think just that that statement norms of professional behavior just seems like such the basic level of just being a TA or a student or whatever that if you can't meet those that level, like, I don't don't know what that says. Like, yeah, you're clearly bereft at that point. Yeah, this could have been much more descriptive. They were probably a little too nice by keeping it so vague. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. So just a timeline of the events leading up to his termination. So a letter was given to Koberger claiming that he had a sexist attitude towards women at the university. He was rude to women and he graded them differently than men. Just weeks into his job, on September 23rd, there was a reported altercation with a professor, which spurred a meeting on professional behavior, and this was set for October 3rd. The professor reportedly emailed Brian on October 21st to say he had failed to meet the expectations set in the meeting earlier in the month. On November 12th, so again, let's just remember when the murders occurred, this is the day night um, into the murders that technically I think occurred on the 13th the professor and Koberger met to discuss an improvement plan which is never a good thing no they love these you know terms like areas for improvement or opportunities for growth meaning you suck and if you don't do this (laughs) well and to me this is all just an example of them papering the file right yeah yeah, I mean, yeah it's from the very beginning they're realizing this in september it's weeks very into true his job it's weeks into the semester they already are papering his file oh, that's and, so true you yeah. know what i mean and they wrote a written a handwritten letter that was already claiming he had a sexist attitude clearly they already had a you know views that something was going to go wrong here and they want to document okay we gave him a letter on september 23rd We gave him a professional behavior lecture on October 3rd. On October 21st, we talked to him about how he failed to meet the expectations set in the lecture. Like, it's very uh, typical. It's CYA. It's CYA, and it's figuring out early on, this guy is not going to be a good fit, and let's make damn sure that we document every minute of this so that it's clear we warned him appropriately. Right. We set expectations. He failed to meet them. We followed up accordingly. Yeah, no, and that's a really great point, too, that this, like, was identified very early on. Like, you think about it, you're saying September here, like, school was not in session for that long. 
it it had to be pretty pronounced for them to realize like oh this is something that is worth documenting like you said yeah yeah and if you already are realizing there's a sexist attitude i mean clearly it's overt and something's you know pretty darn obvious like you said to be that early just weeks into the semester and already be like all right this guy's gonna be a problem yep yeah they've probably had similar cases well not probably not this similar not (laughs) as similar to this but like other ta is where it's like oh we we know how this is gonna go let's start documenting it exactly so then we move on to december 7th there was another meeting held to discuss how the plan was going and then finally on december 9th koberger had a second altercation with the professor and he was ultimately terminated 10 days later so like you said it was it was a lengthy kind of lengthy process and again like you said it seems like they definitely were kind of following all the protocols documenting everything along the way and that's probably why it took kind of this this long a couple months to kind of eventually get him out of the position very true and I mean we're just going like we said in rapid succession here I mean as late as 12 7 we have a meeting to talk about how this improvement plan was going yeah and the improvement plan was just set less than a month earlier on um, November 12th and then Two days later, after this meeting happened to discuss the plan... It was not going. It was not going, (laughs) and an altercation happened, and he was terminated. Yeah. So it's just clear. This guy is a loose cannon. He can't even control himself and keep from having altercations with the professor. And he's just... He's cruising for a bruising. You know what sucks, too, is to be one of the students that he's grading the test for or whatever. Like He's ultimately terminated... But okay, what does that mean for my grade over the semester? That's so true. And even if you weren't a female, like if you were a guy and you were in his class, were you anticipated to just be graded highly because you were a guy and not right, a girl? Like, right. It says a lot about both genders and, you know, just makes it unclear how anybody was doing and how he distracted from the main aim of the class. Yeah, absolutely. So... We fast forward to December 30th, 2022, and this is the day of Brian Koberger's arrest in Monroe County, Pennsylvania, on four counts of murder in the first degree and felony burglary. So can I can I just say it like I followed this case as soon as it started, as soon as it happened. I in no way expected for the person to be arrested all the way out in Pennsylvania. I think that was really shocking. I thought it would definitely be somebody in a bordering state or at least a nearby kind of Midwest, uh, Southwest state. And then to hear that it was somebody not too far, like not too far from us, truthfully, was really shocking. Yeah, I totally agree. It just, it hit a little too close to home again, and it seemed a little too close for comfort. And I think what was going through everybody's mind, because at that point, we didn't all have the benefit of the timeline that we've set for everybody and the background that we gave. So I think all of us were thinking, how in the heck did the police zero in on this guy in Pennsylvania? I mean, this guy's probably got nothing to do with this. Right. I think what we were all thinking at first, obviously, we changed our minds once we heard. So just to figure out how the police kind of figured this guy out, zeroed in on him, the police actually received hundreds of tips from the public about this case, which is crazy. I mean, we've talked about tips in the past on different various cases and how they can be good, they can be bad, but in this case, they were a really, really good thing. And 
On December 15th of 2022, the police announced that they were searching records of approximately 22,000 fifth generation Hyundai Elantras that were made between 2010 and 2015. So why do we know it's a Hyundai Elantra? Why did the police decide to tail all these Hyundai Elantras? We'll tell you why. The camera we talked about last episode that was right in the area of the killings, you know, the one that we heard the dog barking on, we heard a little bit of whimpering, we heard all kinds of stuff, but the really important thing was that it captured an image of an Elantra around the time of the murders. And the investigators noticed that the white Elantra appeared to travel towards Pullman, Washington. We've heard that name before. Yep. And twice it went to 1122 King Road. And the surveillance video, thank God for this video camera, I right? Know. I mean, it makes you want to install video cameras all over your oh, property. Absolutely. But this video also showed the Elantra passing by 1122 King Road three times, starting around 329 a.m., so, I mean, this is no coincidence here. Even if this isn't Brian's car or the killer's car, something's going on with this car. Yeah, and I know police also said after, like, looking at the at the footage that they knew just by obviously surveilling the area or being in the area for many of the calls that we saw for students for noise violations um, that this road was not heavily traveled. Right. So to see this car kind of circle, circle, circle several times was very odd, especially at that hour. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because I, I will say, too, also we mentioned how this was very walkable as well. So if anybody was out, they were walking, not in a car usually. Yeah, I think we even mentioned the fact that there were no Ubers out there. Right. Because people just didn't travel by car. Everything was just within walking distance. The frats were within walking distance. The other houses were within walking distance. And we actually watched a drone video of the neighborhood that just did a really good job of capturing how close the school was to the house at King Road to the frats and everything is right there it is yeah so it's interesting I mean and you just you don't see even the drone video was taken during the day and you see like two or three cars during the whole video that's very true there's not a whole hell of a lot going on and there's not a lot of cars going back and forth and there's really no cars circling the area zeroing in on this 1122 King Road house um, so again, we see this car come back three times starting at 3.29 a.m. And then at 4.04 a.m., the Elantra returns to the home for a fourth time. Finally, at 4.20 a.m., the car is seen leaving the victim's neighborhood at a very high rate of speed. So this is all a little too good. I mean, what are the odds that some random car having nothing to do with the crime is going to circle the property a bunch of times, come close, and then peel off right after the crime was presumably committed? Yeah, and I think this also, too, like I I get everybody's suspicion with kind of the short time frame um, of the murders occurring, but it also lines up perfectly with that, and it, it lines up a little too perfectly If we remember, the DoorDash came right at 4 a.m. Let's just assume that Zana picks it up just before 4.04 a.m. So the car's circling, eventually parks. Um, And this is a whole separate kind of question, too, is how did he actually get in 
um, through the back door, through the slider. They're apparently very easy to open, so he could have just kind of maneuvered it, gotten it open. But it also could have been uh, the situation where Zana picked up the door dash and then the door was left open. He parks at 4.04 and then comes right in. And then I think the time frame that the police said was kind of the final time um, that the murder could have occurred was 425 a.m. So if we see the car speeding away at 420 a.m., again, it all just kind of lines up really perfectly. A little too perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Um, So investigators traced the vehicle's ownership, again, to Brian Koberger, a local individual, and he drove the car with his father to the Poconos for the holidays. This is a very interesting part. He was actually pulled over twice within a five-mile radius by Indiana State Police on I-70 outside of Greenfield, Indiana, for speeding and tailgating. Now, this is ridiculous to me. What do you think was going on here? Because if you just committed a crime of this caliber... What are you doing tailgating and speeding? Do you think I know. he was too nervous from having committed this crime? Or do you think he's just a lousy driver? Like, what's the deal here? Well, there's speculation, and I think it's the FBI has tried to put it to bed that um, they pulled him over intentionally because there is body cam footage of this. There's speculation that they pulled him over to try to get footage of his hands to see if he had any wounds on his hands that they could later take that evidence and you know show like oh look you know defensive wounds exactly and and that happens a lot um with stabbing deaths stabbing murders because and not to get too graphic but if you're stabbing the knife gets bloody your hand's going to kind of slip um on the knife and you're going to end up cutting yourself um so the FBI has has tried to put that to bed and say, no, he actually was just pulled over twice for being a terrible driver. <laughs> Which is hilarious. <laughs> but the creepiest thing, too, is seeing the footage. He already has creepy eyes, like these creepy, oh, dead, big eyes. Um, I don't think his dad had a clue what was going on because the cops pull them over, you know, ask him where you're going so fast or whatever. Brian tries to say, we're going to get Thai food. And the father says, actually, we're driving back to Pennsylvania. Good old Pennsylvania. And and when the father says that, Brian shoots him this like, like wide eyed, like, why are you saying that? Look, like we're trying to play it cool here. Um, But yeah, apparently it was just he's a terrible driver and just got pulled over twice. So who knows? So investigators obtained cell phone data. And this, I think. There's a lot included in the affidavit. I think even more will come out in the trial. The night of the murder, Brian's cell phone data showed that he had lost connection to the network around 2.47 a.m. in Pullman and reconnected around 4.48 a.m. near Blaine, Idaho. And Blaine is right near Highway 95, which is just south of Moscow. This cell phone data, I have to say, I feel like anybody our age, you know, even our parents like boomer generation to a degree would know that you're you're gonna your cell phone's gonna be traced like you're gonna be able to pull that but i think especially our age and younger knows that it's gonna look suspicious for your cell phone to be turned off and turned back on too so i'm surprised by kind of his um his actions here because he definitely would have known this stuff well and especially the fact that again and we'll go back to this point probably a million times but this is somebody who is highly educated in criminology and criminal justice. And you'd really think 
that this guy who's been studying this for a while now and who knows how criminals think, who knows how criminals get caught, who's seen a million different cases of criminals getting caught, would be less stupid than to turn their phone off, turn it back on at right. opportune times. I mean, God, let's I, let's check and make sure he didn't take out a life insurance policy right. on some of these people. Like, exactly. It's so true. Yeah. Um. So his cell phone also shows, and this is very interesting, that he was near the victim's house around 9 a.m. on 11-13. This is roughly five hours after the killings. And um, this is interesting because some people have speculated that, one, I think this is the obvious reason, and I think this is what I lean more towards, he was coming back, driving by to see if if the murders had been discovered yet. So he's driving by looking to see, is there police activity, kind of what's going on, morbid, you know, I feel like a lot of killers do this. They like to see their names in the newspapers and stuff like that. Another speculation is that he realized at this point that the... Uh, knife sheath had been left behind and he's possibly returning to try to sneak back into the house and get it back. I think the knife sheath, I don't know, this whole case, I feel like there's a whole separate layer to this that we just don't understand. I don't think he's coming back to look for the knife sheath. I don't know if it was intentionally placed there or I don't know. I, I just don't think he's that stupid uh, to then try to come back and find it as well. This is super interesting, too. He was also near the residence. We know this from cell phone data at least 12 times between June 2022 and November 13th of that year. Now, that's a ton of time. Yeah. And it just seems to me to be very hard to prove that he was there for some reason other than being a creepy stalker. But you've got some alternative theories, right? Yeah. The the one thing, and I think it could make sense. There's not a lot of data at least verified out there. Um, but we kind of covered it that this house is speculated to be a drug house. And so if this is a big kind of drug selling house, it would make sense that he had connected with them and he's showing up multiple times to buy drugs. But the one thing that does really surprise me is that if he had just started school there, that's very quick to kind of latch on to these people either way, if it's drugs or if it's just like something more nefarious fixation on on a victim, like to kind of latch on to them beginning June 2022 seems really quick. So that that to me is just really perplexing. And I don't I don't know, because I think I saw somewhere that most leases start around July there. So he probably got one that started maybe just a little bit earlier would make sense why he's out there in June. But, like, if you're moving there and then just immediately either finding a drug house or finding a a victim that you're starting to stalk, that's pretty crazy to me. Yeah, that's really fast. Yeah. But, and just, I don't know. There's kind of no other explanation other than really, really creepy ones. Yeah, no. there's, There's no way, like, the surviving roommates didn't know him. It doesn't seem like from any social media or uh, friends of the victims, like nobody recognized him, knew him. So it doesn't make sense that he was like a friend or somehow became friendly with somebody that was related to the house. Well, and you'd think even if he was stopping by there to buy drugs, which sadly it's the least nefarious version of the story is that he just was into the drug aspect of the house and the party aspect. But even if that were true, somebody from the house would have known who he was if he was stopping by that frequently 12 times in less than six months yeah yeah. like come on 
No, that's pretty crazy. That's a good point. Um, another nail in the coffin was this tan knife sheath that we mentioned that was found on Maddie Mogan's bed. And the DNA from this sheath matched an individual with familial connection to Koberger on a genealogy database. Now, I was very surprised when this um, was confirmed to be the source of tracking down Koberger because any other genealogy kind of base confirmation of an offender especially when it's not even direct it's familial connecting to like a father or an uncle has seemed to have taken a lot longer than it seemed to have taken investigators in this case to really narrow in on Koberger so that was surprising and also very encouraging for what this um what this technology can hopefully do in the future and how quickly it can help to track down offenders now, this part cracks me up. It's not funny because he's a murderer, but it's also hilarious the way that this guy does not cover his tracks, but attempted to cover his tracks and was caught trying oh to my cover God, his tracks idiot. badly. Yeah. Talking about DNA and talking about the DNA from the knife sheath and how that got matched to the familial connection to Koberger, the DNA, the same DNA, was also matched to DNA found on trash recovered from Brian's family home in Pennsylvania. And just to give you a hint as to Brian's relationship with said trash, before he, <laughs> aside from being trash himself, yeah. before he got arrested, the investigators were monitoring Koberger for a little while. And one thing that they noticed him doing for quite some time was that he was outside of his parents' house wearing surgical gloves <laughs> And putting trash bags oh inside God. the garbage can of a neighbor. Y'all, this is embarrassing. Very. I mean, not only is he clearly trying to keep his prints off the outside of the garbage bags, he's bagging up all his stuff that's, I guess, potentially contaminated with stuff from the crime, and he's throwing it out in his neighbor's garbage. I have to say, I hope they have some, like, night vision footage. Oh, me too. Where he looks like a raccoon with, like, the Creeping. glowing eyes, like, woo, like, yeah. looking over with his surgical gloves, putting stuff in people's trash. Right. Like, who gave this guy that bright idea? Yeah. My God. Ooh, and this is from, like, supposedly one of the best schools for criminology in the country. Right. Like, no offense. But really embarrassing. Must have skipped and uh, trash disposal one on one there. <laughs> he must have skipped that, skipped that lesson and skipped don't wear surgical gloves <laughs> right, when right. the police are already on your tail. Oh, he's a big fan of gloves. We'll get into that too later. Oh, I can't wait to hear the, this. The one. ID portion. Oh my gosh. Well, the police saw this all happening. And of course, all of those items got sent to the Idaho State Lab for testing. The authorities also said, and this is. Again, hysterical, but deeply sad that yeah. it's like he followed the rules to the letter, but left no room for interpretation to actually do a good job. No. Because he, he, he is living full forensic files <laughs> yes. from 1995, where it's like, no, of course How they didn't sleepwalk and kill their, their spouse. Like, we know. Right, exactly. It's not a mannequin. Like, we get it. Ugh. Home invasion gone wrong? Nope. But yeah, so what he tried to do is to get rid of the evidence. So what Brian did, in theory, was smart, but execution, <laughs> not great. He cleaned his car inside and out, not missing an inch of area. So this guy 
he cleaned so much that it actually made him more suspicious. Oh, did he did everything except repainting his car? Probably that was probably next on his list. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh my gosh, he did too good of a job, and it just gave him away again for the billionth time. Because again, he leaves a perfectly clean, perfectly sanitized trail of plastic gloves <laughs> right to his uh, demise. So according to authorities, a search of the home where Brian was arrested revealed a knife, a pistol, and you guessed it, a black face mask. But I think what's even better, where he was arrested, like we had mentioned, was at his parents' home. So he's just bringing this home for the holidays. Like, where is he keeping this stuff? Just, you know, I think he would have been smarter to actually leave it there or dispose of it before going home. Holding on to this stuff is the stupidest thing he could have done. That's actually such a good point. And it's... It really does reek of, like, mama's boy slash, like, (laughs) loser living in your parents' basement when he, like, came home with all this crap. Like, oh, my son, the murderer, brought home. I'll just wear some gloves and no one will know it's mine. Right. And, like, clean my car with a fine-tooth comb. That'll totally get rid of any inkling of suspicion. Not. Ugh. So, at the time of his arrest on December 30th, authorities found oh this Brian. is great this who, is very who would funny. love to be like caught in the act of this oh i would just i'd love to be a fly on the wall oh for this god. one because this guy is just embarrassing I oh mean, my god and if you just put everything together with the fact that the police had been watching him for days <laughs> sorting through his trash with plastic gloves <laughs> moving his own garbage to his neighbor's trash oh can and hygienically cleaning his car they happen upon him in his home on december 30th in the kitchen dressed in a shirt and shorts not up late getting a snack not up late getting a snack (laughs) like another raccoon type uh move Mm -hmm. but wearing his favorite gloves gotta have them gotta have them his plastic medical gloves hope he doesn't have a latex allergy oh seriously because those (laughs) hands are screwed and get this, he's grabbing trash and he's putting it into separate Ziploc baggies. I mean, how do you dispose of your trash? Some other I like, way? I like to leave it in multiple. He wanted to make sure to spread it around the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. I yeah. just like, I like to categorize it like most damaging to my reputation to least damaging. Yeah, like and then I put the most utensils, damaging in my neighbors. Straws, uh, napkins, we'll put it in another. And, yeah. Right? Oh, my God. So just humiliating. I would just. I'd love for photos of this arrest to surface. Oh my God, could you picture like they break in like police or whatever, and he just freezes like in his gloves, in his in his like dad pajama shirt and shorts, and then oh. like gloves with a bunch of Ziploc baggies all around with him. a bunch of garbage in it. Like you got <laughs> yuhus in one bag and your used toothbrush in the other. Right? Like what's going on? It's so embarrassing. I just I can't believe he even. <laughs> It's just, it's very embarrassing. It's really sad for the victims, but I think it's just clear that it's clear that it's him. And everybody was just so happy when all of this came together with such a neat bow on it. Because it was like, thank God, finally, we're going to have some justice for these victims. Yeah, like, thank God he was this stupid and also... And clear about his actions. Yeah, just like his actions were very suspicious and very stupid. So dumb. Yeah. So timeline of the arrest again we're here at good old new year's day january 1st 2023 so not too long ago his family issued a statement saying they were sad for the victims and will cooperate fully with law enforcement and i will say it is really sad um his sisters were both 
I believe, psychiatrists, psychologists in the Oof. psychology field. Um, and I think they've both lost their jobs, actually, since then. God. And I, I truthfully, I don't think the family knew. And I don't think they, at least based on kind of what other people have said about the family, they're hardworking, nice people, especially apparently a lot of people have said, like, his mom was especially nice. Like, What a shame. Su- super nice lady. And, you know, they just are probably in shock. And I think it's probably very difficult. They seem to be standing by him and supporting him, still kind of backing the narrative that he was not guilty. He's being set up. You kind of can't blame him. (laughs) But at the same time, like, if this is the evidence that's been released so far, I can only imagine what other evidence is out there that we don't know about. (sighs) That's a hard one to deny. That is really hard. When they find you plastic glove handed <laughs> with your garbage walking yeah. sort of sorting my trash i always categorize my garbage when i'm sleepwalking yeah you know how it goes we move then to january 4th 2023 koberger arrived in idaho and was taken into custody by authorities there he was being um and he's being held currently without bond in latah county jail on four counts of murder and one count of burglary now This, again, people have been so invested in this case, much like the Gabby Petito case, where a lot has kind of played out online with everybody speculating and tracking things. When they were flying him back to Idaho, they would not give any details about where he was flying out from, when he was flying out, where he was flying into. Somebody was able to kind of track it down. And it was insane because somebody figured out the plane that he was on and then you know how you can track flights and everything now not even you know commercial flights but non-commercial flights you can uh, track them as well they tracked his flight and it was like an announcement of like he's arriving at this time you know he's this far out whatever and then somebody was able to also get pictures when he landed there in Idaho but it was a it was a whole ordeal just even getting him onto the plane and getting him back in the state. Wow, he's lucky he didn't get tarred and feathered at that airport, truly. I'm surprised an angry mob didn't come after him and just bludgeon him to death. Well, they're better people than us in the Midwest. That's for (laughs) sure. They're a gentler group of people. Yes, yes, they are. So on January 12th, 2023, Koberger appeared in court for a preliminary hearing, and his attorney asked that the hearing be set for June. So... And I do just have to say, I know I mentioned this before, always a fan of these like famous names not the actual person his attorney is ann taylor just have to say no way <laughs> yeah. oh my god what a yeah. great thing yeah well you'd think she would side with these women here and well she'll be impe- impeccably dressed for court each day absolutely if else. business professional yes <laughs> <laughs> he is going to be appearing in court on june 26 2023 for a probable cause hearing And this hearing is expected to last about five days. And I mean, I speak for both of us when I say we are just so excited to hear this hearing, to hear what happens at this hearing and what goes on. Because this guy, I mean, it goes to ridiculousness how insane and culpable he appears to be. So I just can't imagine. Ann Taylor has her work cut out for her she in does. her perfect work suit that I'm sure <laughs> she's donning. And I I just can't wait to hear what the heck she's going to say in his defense. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. I'm sure it's going to be very emotional to all the families. Um, but I think it's great, too, that this seems to at least be continuing on at at, at least a good speed. Um, I feel like cases like this can definitely be 
postponed or delayed for years. So I think at least at this point, it's nice to see that it's going to happen, um, you know, and happen in a kind of speedy manner. Thank God. So the one thing that has recently come out, so this is kind of the bulk of what came out right around his arrest and, and immediately afterwards. After that, there haven't been too many details that have come out, but the most recent one And again, this is not confirmed by police, but apparently um, sources close to the case have confirmed that an ID of one of the victims was actually found in Koberger's possession. And if you do see one of the warrants for what was collected at the, I believe, the Pennsylvania house, IDs are listed on there. And this is kind of the connection that a lot of speculated that this is what they were referring to. To go back to his love for gloves, (laughs) the ID was apparently found in a glove in a box, not to be confused with the glove box. (laughs) (laughs) Like several posts on Reddit were like, it was not found in the glove box. And so it's obviously speculated that it's one of the female victims. I think speaking for both of us, we probably assume it's Maddie Mogan's ID and it's it's a typical kind of souvenir that a lot of killers would take. I, I know even the Golden State Killer and whatnot took IDs a lot of the time, so it wouldn't be odd for him to have that in his possession. Another uh, theory that I recently heard that I just, I don't know, love is not the right word, but like I love to hear this stuff because this type of thinking and speculation is really interesting to me. Somebody speculated that what if he had found the ID and that's what actually sparked his interest and um, targeting these victims, which I think is really interesting because, again, we're talking about such a short timeline. What if he found her ID or it was a fake ID or something like that, has the address on there or he's just able to kind of narrow her down, find her social media because it was public and then he just honed in on her. I hadn't even thought about that. So when somebody posted that, I was like, that's a very interesting theory, too. So really interesting. And sort of, again, like you said, would go to how the heck did he get so into this house, into this area so quickly? And why would he return so many times within such a short period? And maybe that's why. I mean, who knows? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And again, we're not too far off from June, so... Hopefully, maybe as we get closer, we'll get a little bit more information. And then once we get uh, into the court proceedings, hopefully more will be released. And also, I'm hoping that this will be televised or at least we'll get the audio. I know with the Lori Vallow case, they're not releasing, they're not filming in the courtroom, but the audio is coming out. And obviously, like I said, with the Murdoch case, I watched that every day, had it on in the background. So I think this one in particular would be very interesting to follow along as if you're a juror and kind of see everything going on. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Betsy Boss Podcast. If you'd like to find us online, we're on Facebook at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Instagram at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Twitter at Betsy Boss Pod, and our email is BetsyBossPodcast at gmail.com. Also, Betsy Boss is now on both iTunes and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and comment. Thanks again for listening.